0: Well, please keep open, Proverbs chapter 5, as we come to study it this evening. We're continuing our series in this book of Proverbs, particularly the first nine chapters uh, at this time, and we've been considering this series of speeches or appeals that a father makes to his son, and this evening our theme is quite simply Wisdom for Marriage, Wisdom for Marriage, and you'll see a little number one uh, beside, uh, or in that title, uh, because If we continue to make our way through Proverbs for long enough, uh, it will have more to say about marriage. Uh, And so, God willing, in due time, we'll we'll come to those things. But tonight, uh, we're considering one particular aspect of marriage here in Proverbs 5, verses 1 to 23. Well, you've likely heard it said by many preachers, perhaps even you've already heard me say it in my time as your pastor, that one of the reasons we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible Is so that we don't just stick to the safer and more familiar subjects, so that the preacher isn't preaching on hobby horses, so that people aren't just hearing the same things over and over again, but so that we consider the whole counsel of God. And we have a good example of that uh, here in Proverbs 5 this evening. Uh, This is certainly not a subject uh, I would probably choose to preach on, certainly not to preach on it too often, but it's here before us in this next portion of Proverbs. It's God's word and it demands our attention. And indeed it tells us something about the importance of the subject we're dealing with tonight that we find it coming up so frequently in God's word. The issues of marriage, sex, and sexual sin. Uh, When you think about it, there is hardly a book of the Bible that doesn't have something to say on these subjects, either by way of command or direction, or by way of lessons that we're to learn from the lives of others. Uh, consider the very first wedding, very first book of the Bible, only the, second, uh, the, the first and second chapters of the Bible, uh, and what God decreed after the creation of man and woman, Genesis 2:24. therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. One man, one woman for life, enjoying one another in marriage. That was the creation pattern given by God. We've been thinking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And the issues of marriage and adultery are certainly a part of the lives of those men. Uh, Mistakes in that area almost ruined Abraham's life when he took Hagar as a concubine. The book of Exodus provides us with the Ten Commandments, the seventh of which is, you shall not commit adultery. Whether it's the book of Judges from a time when everyone did, were told they did what was right in their own eyes, whether it's the days of King David who himself stumbled in the area of sexual sin, uh, these issues just keep coming up as we go through the Bible. Almost in the very heart of our Bibles, we have the Song of Solomon, which is a joyful, unashamed, at times very explicit celebration of physical intimacy between a husband and a wife. We come to the New Testament and we see the Lord Jesus quizzed for his views on divorce in a culture where uh, the religious authorities had made it easier for a man to divorce his wife. And rather than going along with that, Jesus simply affirmed the Genesis pattern. He said, a man shall hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Pick almost any of the New Testament epistles, the letters. Hardly one of them doesn't sternly warn the readers of the dangers of sexual temptation. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 4, Again, in rather explicit language, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps for a limited time. And we read earlier from Ephesians 5 where Paul goes as far as to say that God-ordained marriage between a man and a woman is a profound mystery, but it is also a picture of the union of Christ and the church. All this to say, friends, that God clearly, clearly wants us to receive his wisdom for sex, marriage, and sexual temptation. And you only need to consider how often these subjects are addressed in scripture to see that. And so whilst we might not choose to talk about these things publicly, and again, a preacher would perhaps prefer to avoid the possibility uh, of embarrassment, We need to talk about them. Those of you who are parents need to talk about them in due time, at the right time, with your children. Remember, after all, that that's what the book of Proverbs is. It's parents training up their children. In particular, it's a father speaking to his sons. And so, fathers, you must speak to your sons about these things, again, at the right time and in the right way. Children are glimpsing pornography for the first time at younger and younger ages, whether on social media, music, video channels, television, video games, everywhere. Uh, And so it's not that parents need to have the talk with their children. I remember when I was growing up, there was an awful lot of talk about the talk uh, in media, but it's not a case of the talk. It's a case of multiple talks carried out with love and care and wisdom at appropriate times in a child's development into adulthood. Just look here at verse 1, Proverbs 5, verse 1. My son, my son. The eighth appeal of the father is perhaps the most heartfelt that we've seen so far. He chooses to speak to his son about something that he knows is crucially important. He knows how powerful sexual temptation can be. He also knows how wonderful sexual intimacy can be if enjoyed according to God's design. And so he instructs and teaches his son about these things. Uh, And just before we we get into the text more this evening, I'm conscious that some of what I say perhaps doesn't seem directly applicable to everyone listening. Uh, Some of you are very young. You're not married yet. Uh, Although I would point out to you, those of you young adults, uh, not married yet, that this chapter in its context is first and foremost for young people. Uh, The son being addressed here is either recently married or he soon could be married and some of you fit that category this evening, so you need to listen carefully. Uh, Some of you are older and though you've been married, uh, your marital status for different reasons has reverted to single. Some of you perhaps have always been single and always expect to be. Uh, And if you fall into those groups, some of what we cover this evening might not seem immediately relevant for you, but it still informs how you are to think about the world in which we live. It informs you about the the pressures faced perhaps by your children or grandchildren or those in your church whom you pray for, uh, the needs of the married people in your congregation or extended family, and the ways in which regardless of age or marital status, we need to avoid falling into the mindset of the world when it comes to these things. A large proportion of our congregation, however, is made up of married men and women. And so when the scripture speaks so emphatically and clearly on this subject, we need uh, to pay attention to it. So that's a rather long introduction this evening, but we just have two main points. Um, First of all, we're gonna think about wisdom's warning, adultery's bitter consequences, and then we'll think together uh, later on about wisdom's way Enjoy intimacy in marriage. So first of all this evening, wisdom's warning of adultery's bitter consequences. One of the pictures I've tried to keep before your minds as we go through Proverbs is that there are two paths winding their way through every area of our lives. They wind their way through our homes. They wind their way through our thoughts, our conversations, our workplace dilemmas. It's the path of wisdom that leads to life and blessing, and the path of foolishness that leads to death. And that is certainly the case when it comes to sexual desires and temptations. Just look how strongly the father urges his son to listen to him about this, verses 1 and 2. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, And your lips may guard knowledge. And so, again, more strongly than ever, the father urges his son here to listen to him because he knows how appealing this particular temptation can be, how strong this particular temptation can be of just letting loose with sexual desire. Look at verse 3. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. The translation there, two-edged sword, uh, literally it is two-mouthed. And what it's saying is that this woman will say one thing for one uh, to get what she wants. She will say another thing when it suits her to get what she wants. But he's saying here that the whole appeal of sexual temptation will be, will be very attractive. The word honey there is, very, is really key to the picture. Honey was uh, a sought-after um, sought piece of food or, or enjoyment in that culture. A uh, culture with a lot of dryness and aridness. Honey was so sweet. Remember how the promised land is described as a land flowing with milk and honey. And this is honey straight from the honeycomb. The best honey, the sweetest honey. And he says, that's how the forbidden woman appears. That's how the adulteress appears. So sweet, so enticing. But in the end, the father warns what appeared to be the sweetest honey. Turns out to be the most rancid vinegar. Bitter as wormwood, he says in verse 4. Notice in verses 5 and 6, the contrast that we've seen all throughout Proverbs. Just notice what it says. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. Again, wisdom leads to life. Foolishness leads to death. And of course, in the Bible, death doesn't just mean physical death. It also means the death of the slow death, sometimes the very uh, quick death of joy, of contentment, of a feeling of being loved or trusted or known. All of these things. It's what happened the day Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. God said in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Did they drop dead in the spot? No. But something died between them, and something died between them and God that had to be restored and rebuilt in God's grace. All sin, friends, kills off good things in our lives, and that includes the sin of adultery and any other sexual sin that we would think of as well. At first, it seems as sweet as honey. If I just experienced this, if I could just be with that person, how sweet, how exciting. How fulfilling that would be. But the bitter result is lostness. Verse 6, she wanders around aimlessly. And ultimately it leads to death. Now I should say here, because my wife asked me about this, and she was right to ask, and maybe the same question is in your minds, uh, this is all about a woman enticing a man? Is that all that Proverbs is worried about? And of course, that's not the case. We're, we're being given principles here that apply to all kinds of scenarios of sexual temptation. This is a, an example of what some commentators call concrete wisdom. In other words, it's, it's wisdom that is, a, it is applied to a particular situation. So in this situation, it's a young man being tempted by a woman. But there are principles that apply to all kinds of other scenarios, whether it's a woman being tempted by a man, uh, whether it's young people who are not yet married and attracted to someone else. There are principles here that apply no matter what the situation. There are principles here for the person tempted by pornography or online chat rooms. There are principles here for someone feeling dissatisfied with the routine, unexciting demands of ordinary family life. Tempted to believe that a risky fling with a colleague or an old acquaintance or someone they've met online would liven things up. There's no point pretending that those things might not not at first in the right situation seem appealing. The best bait that a fisherman can use is the bait that is likely to attract the fish. And it's the same when Satan tempts us. Of course, he's going to make it seem as appealing as possible. Of course, he's going to give reasons why it's justifiable or it's okay because of whatever. Of course, he's going to make it seem as appealing, uh, as sweet as honey from the honeycomb. But in fact, once experienced, the consequences will be bitter. Verse 4 says, the forbidden woman is bitter as wormwood. Wormwood is connotations there of poisonous. Again, sin poisons our lives, it infects the good, the best things about our lives and ruins them for us. And so the father highlights at least three of the better consequences of adultery if his son would fail to listen to him. First of all, he mentions stolen strength, stolen strength, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment, but if you look at verse seven, now, O sons, listen to me, do not depart from the words of my mouth, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Essentially what the father says to the son is, think of how much you have to lose by going along with this sin. The words honor and years in verse 9, he's talking there about everything you've been building. You've been building a reputation as a trustworthy person. Your family, you've been building a family. Children who have known the stability and security of a mother and father being together. Your wealth. Is it worth having to split everything down the middle with an estranged spouse or risking even being blackmailed or threatened by someone who uses you and exploits you? And again, you don't have to be married to suffer bitter consequences from sexual sin. Young people, particularly young men, are having their brains rewired today by the pornography that they look at, which usually progresses from something mild to something increasingly more violent and perverted. Pornography is filling the user's mind with images of things that are unrealistic at best, deranged or even demonic at worst. You think of the young person who is tempted to believe the lie of our culture that sex is not just an act, Something you do, it's a life. It's, it can be your whole identity. It's who you are, particularly if you're attracted to someone of the same sex. Of course, our culture will celebrate that all day long. No one warns that young person, however, of the disproportionate number of medical checkups required because of the lifestyle that they might live. The high number of people in that lifestyle who have suicidal thoughts, not as is so often claimed in our media today, because they're being bullied or suppressed, but because that lifestyle that seemed as sweet as honey when they've tried it for a while ends up being as bitter as wormwood and filling them with regret. And all of a sudden, someday, someone realizes that their best years are gone and they've given them away to people who didn't really care about them at all. So that's the first consequence, stolen strength, your best days squandered, in in, in sexual sin. But then it leads on, as I've already been hinting, the second consequence is endless regret. Endless regret. Look at verse 11. At the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I said this just a, a week or two ago, but one of the things that will make hell so hellish is the endless regret that sinners have in hell. Regret is not just something you'll have for the rest of your life if you don't repent of sin. Regret is something you'll have in eternity. Why didn't I listen? Why didn't I think? Why didn't I repent when I had the chance Sin promises joy, it brings regret, it baits us, and then it breaks us. And the father here is urging the son to think through where temptation leads, not just to see the immediate attractive temptation, but to think through what it could cost us, our family, even our community. One writer says, one can never judge based on the appearance of the moment but one must keep the end in view. Those of you who are married, or you young people, if you get married someday, you need to prepare not just for the first day of your marriage. The first day is the easiest day. But you need to prepare for the last day. You need to reverse engineer your marriage. Is it going to end, is your marriage going to end someday with thankfulness for all God's blessings? With the two of you, God willing, old and grey. And one of you kissing the forehead of the other and entrusting them into God's hands. Thankful for a life of, yes, imperfection, but blessing and faithfulness. Or is it going to end in bitter regret because of sexual sin? Stolen strength, endless regret, and and the final consequence that the father warns his son of, public shame. Public shame. Verse 14 I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation." The Father is saying that almost certainly, secret adultery does not stay secret. It becomes public knowledge, and when it does, those involved will be ashamed, they'll they'll have a sense of judgment upon them, they'll have a sense of guilt. The respect people once had for them vanishes, the trust they had is broken. They lied about this, what else have they lied about? Relationships with our nearest and dearest ruined. I should say at this point that adultery or other sexual sins, they are not unforgivable sins. Absolutely not. Jesus Christ can cover over a multitude of sins. He can forgive us for this sin like any other, if it is genuinely confessed of, repented of, turned from. But if it is not, these are the better results. Again, verses five and six, her feet go down to death. She does not ponder the path of life. And so the father here, friends, in no uncertain terms, with heart-rending urgency, calls his son to avoid adultery and any other form of sexual temptation as well. But the father doesn't just tell his son what he shouldn't do with his natural sexual desires More positively, he tells him what he should do. And so having thought about wisdom's warning to avoid adultery, uh, we secondly think about wisdom's way, enjoying intimacy in marriage. Wisdom's way, enjoying intimacy in marriage. The father goes on to tell his son that the the best place, the most rewarding place for sexual desire to be realized is in faithful, committed marriage. Look at verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Now, the picture here takes us to the hot, arid climate of the Middle East. Uh, if you had a cistern, that was extremely valuable, a cistern being something you, you collect rainwater in. And if you had your own cistern, well, that's brilliant. That saves you a, a, a hot, tiring hike into town every day or wherever the nearest well was. If you have your own well, your own cistern, why would you bother going anywhere else? You enjoy what you have of course, the father here is saying to his son, why go off looking for sexual gratification in the wrong places when you could be married and find it with your wife? Look at verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely dear, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Again, very, very erotic, very strong language, poetically describing the, the physical intimacy of a husband and a wife. And if you think that's strong language, you should read the Song of Solomon. But quite simply, the father is saying to the son, get married to your wife and enjoy one another. And keep on enjoying one another. And if you do that, why would you ever think twice about straying from one another? So let's be clear. There is nothing wrong with sexual desire. Channeled, enjoyed, in the right context, which is marriage. And all the security and trust that that should bring between one man and one woman. We want to make too much of this point, but the language is very strong, and we need to appreciate what the Bible is saying to us here. One writer says, "In teachings such as we have in this chapter, we observe the very positive attitude of the Bible towards sensuality and sexuality when enjoyed in the context of marriage." Another says, "The young man is exhorted to a single-hearted, impassioned affection for his bride." An impassioned affection for his bride. That's what God wants. If He calls you into marriage, that'll be one of the greatest joys that a couple can share. That it be that it is God's designed gift. And this is where we have to reject the lies of the world and believe the truth of God's word, friends. Satan baits his hook by telling us that sexual fulfillment is found only by breaking the boundaries of going away or from or beyond what God has permitted and everything about our culture's attitude to these things backs that up. How many happily married couples are portrayed in TV or film? Very few. How many jokes do we hear about marital faithfulness and how supposedly boring and passionless marriage is? Far too many yet, interestingly, the statistics back up everything the Bible has to say about this. Not that that should surprise us, but it's interesting to note nonetheless. Uh, Nancy Piercy is a Christian author. Uh, she's written some excellent books. Uh, she had a book published last year called The Toxic War on Masculinity. The Toxic War on Masculinity, I would highly recommend it. And she quotes some research uh, carried out by professors at the University of Virginia. So it's American research, but I'm pretty sure... The results would translate in our part of the world. And one of the lies that she exposes in her book is the notion that Christian couples are now just as unhappy and divorced at just the same rate as non-Christians. Maybe you've heard that claim in recent years that, that Christians are, are doing no better in this area than anybody else. But, and of course it's not to say that those things are not a part of, of the lives of Christian people. But Piercy quotes research that examines that claim more closely because, of course, lots of people claim to be Christians. But the question is, are they living a life consistent with that claim? And so researchers have routinely found that couples who worship regularly together, who pray regularly together, who read their Bibles daily, who worship weekly, produce very different results. Piercey's researchers found that the happiest, this is a quote, the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have higher quality marriages. Shouldn't surprise us, but it's encouraging that it's true. Uh, Piercy says, uh, one study found that, quote, for both wives and husbands, feeling that God was part of their marriage was positively associated with sexual satisfaction. Another study concluded, When it comes to relationship quality in heterosexual relationships, highly religious couples enjoy higher quality relationships and more sexual satisfaction compared to less religious or mixed religious couples or secular couples. So contrary to what TV and film and a sex-obsessed culture would have us believe, The best kept secret is that faithful, Christ-centered, God-worshipping marriages are the most fun. Sorry if that causes a few cheeks to turn red this evening, but I want those of us who are married or who would like to be married someday to be encouraged by that and to realize that the evidence proves that God's word can be trusted on this subject. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely dear A graceful though, be intoxicated always in her love. The word intoxicated, again, extremely strong language. Yes, by all means, he says, get carried away. Give in to your desires, but get carried away with your spouse. And avoid at all costs adultery and its bitter consequences. So the two paths that wind their way through our lives and here the father instructs his son which path to take in the area of sexuality and marriage. But of course, friends, there's more to all of this than the question uh, of, of marriage and these related issues and temptations that we've considered this evening. And just look at verse 21: "For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths, all his paths." Whatever our marital status now or in the future, whatever our particular strengths and weaknesses, God's eye is on every part of our lives. And the question is whether not just in the area of marriage, but in every other area of life, are we living wisely or foolishly? Are we on the path of life or are we on the path to death? Verse 22 says, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. Verse 23 says he dies for lack of discipline. The greatest problem we're all living with, friends, is not our marital status, whether we're married or single, widowed or divorced. After all, even the best marriages are marriages between two sinners. Even the best experiences in marriage are temporary, not permanent. And even if we don't give them away foolishly and sinfully, one day our years... And our strength and our lives will be spent and gone. And the question then will be, have we been on the path of wisdom? Trusting through, through trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or has a path of foolishness and sin that seems so attractive at first led us to death? The Bible commands us to live not for marriage and its blessings, But for something even greater, whether we ever get married or not. Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 1 If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What an amazing truth that is. We will be left on our own in this life, whether intentionally by someone we loved and trusted or whether simply in the passage of time till death do us part. Marriage comes to an end. But there's something far greater than marriage that we all have to live for. Christ, who is our life. And who will appear. And who will bring us together with him in his glory. And so Paul goes on in Colossians 3 verse 5. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry. On account of these the wrath of God is coming. Or as Proverbs 5 says, a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. Not just as ways in marriage, but in all these other areas of life as well. So what are we to do in a world full of temptation and struggle? What are we to do with our own hearts? As we were thinking last Lord's Day evening that can be so sinful and full of uh, ungodly desires. Paul tells us right at the beginning of that passage, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Wisdom is found in following him, striving by the help that his spirit gives to live lives of holiness and godliness until we see him come. Does the Lord see you this evening taking wise steps to avoid adultery or whatever other temptations Satan may put in your way, sexual or otherwise? And if he has called you into marriage, does he see you rejoicing in that marriage? honoring your spouse, living out that profound mystery of husband and wife that is to be a wonderful picture of Christ and the church. And if he hasn't called you into marriage, be assured there is something far greater than marriage waiting for all of us, which is Christ who is our life and who will appear. Amen.